0: I called the series Born for This because you were. If you ever wondered why you were born, thanks, Ed, he's coming to sit in the center. What a helpful guy. That's good. Now you've got to be sure to stay awake and smile, otherwise I'll get discouraged while I'm preaching. (laughs) Rick Warren has written a book, best-selling book, in which he says, You were made for a purpose, and until you find and embrace that purpose, your life will never have meaning. He lists a series of purposes for which he says all human beings, according to the Bible, were created. And he tells us that the first one is this. You were planned for God's pleasure. God made you because you make him smile. Oh, by the way, sometimes you make him cry, too. But you make him smile. And anything you do, anything you say, any place you go, any relationship you enter into, any activity you participate in that makes God smile, what do you think we call that? That's worship. Yeah, in a nutshell, that is worship because you were planned for God's pleasure. Some of you who, for instance, maybe uh, uh, sing or play in the praise band may have sung and led music this morning. Then you went down and you said to your wife or husband, so how was it, honey? (laughs) Okay. And, of course, they lied to you because we're all amateur musicians, so we don't know any better. But the thing is that uh, it really doesn't matter. We ought to be going, so how was it, God? We perform for an audience of one. For in that, there's meaning and purpose. And our expression of worship is only as meaningful as it draws you into the experience. So the way I measure it, or try to measure it, isn't by asking God, because sometimes it takes a minute to listen for God's voice. Have you ever noticed that? He's not in a hurry. And I'm usually in a hurry to get the answer. But if I'll quickly look out here and see if your singing... If you're singing from the heart, if you're singing and it looks like behind your eyeballs the wheels are turning and you're thinking about what you're singing, I know God is pleased. Warren went on to say this in his book. You were planned for God's pleasure. God did not need to create you, but he chose to create you. For his benefit, for his glory, for his purpose, for his delight. See if you can get your mind and heart around that. You were planned for God's pleasure. God did not need to create you, but he chose to create you. For his benefit, for his glory, for his purpose, for his delight. So for seven weeks, we're going to talk about worship. And today, we're going to start with a definition. Uh, What kind of words need to be defined? Well, sometimes a word you're not familiar with, or you don't regularly use, you might read it in the newspaper and go, I wonder what they meant by that word, and you quickly look it up in your Webster's. That's a good usage of definitions. But another one is this, a word that you're certain you know exactly what it means. But you don't really know exactly what it means. My mom used to have this thing which would make you really happy that you didn't grow up in my house. Where if one of my friends would, not knowing she was listening, use a word that it would have been better if my mom didn't hear, right? She would, no, the part was not, she wouldn't scold them. She would simply say to them, son, do you know what that word means? And, of course, those aren't the kind of words that we have definitions for. Do you know where that word comes from and why we use it that way? And their eyes would cross and they would be in it. Well, sit down and I'll tell you. And she would say things like, and this is absolutely true, I remember this lecture. She said, uh, in colonial times, when someone was arrested for a crime... They would be put in the stockards and put right in the public square so that they could be ridiculed by the entire community. And above their head was written their crime. And if the crime was too long to write on the board above their heads, they would abbreviate it. And so, for adultery, for unlawful carnal knowledge. Now you know So don't ever use that word again in my presence unless you're going to use it properly and be ready to instruct somebody as to its proper usage. That happened at my house. Definitions are important, aren't they? We're going to define worship. You use it all the time. You talk about it all the time. If somebody asked you where you were going this morning, (laughs) you might have said, I'm going to worship. And if somebody would have said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you probably would have crossed your eyes like the guy who had to define the curse word, right? Uh, I've read lots of definitions of worship, but I've never found one better than this one from Louis Giglio's little book. It's just a tiny little book on worship called The Air I Breathe. And he says this, worship is simply our response, both personal and personal and corporate to God for who he is and for what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Let's take a moment to think about that definition today and as we do, let's compare it with the words of Romans 11:33 through 121 that I was so eager to read today. First of all, simply worship is our response to God, our response to God. Of all the people I've met, in my life. There is one group of people who love to talk about God more than anybody else I know. Any ideas who that group of people are? They are atheists. You think that sounds strange? Do they not? They will say to me, so, what do you do for a living? I wish they wouldn't ask, but I'll say, well, I'm a a pastor. And they'll go, oh, I don't believe in God. And I'll usually say, well, that's all right. How about those cubs? I just figure that atheists are probably also cub fans, right? Anyhow, how about those cubs? (laughs) How about the weather? No, yeah, but you need to know, I don't believe in God. Yeah, that's fine. I'm sure he's cool with that. But here's the thing. They want to talk about God more than I want to talk about God. Because everybody, even atheists, who, by the way, they're not atheists because they don't believe in God. They're atheists because they are mad at God. He, they believe in him probably better than you do, but they're just kind of mad at how he's handled things. Of what he's done and what he allowed to happen in their lives or whatever. So they think the best way to get back at God is not to believe in him. Well, that's pretty silly because, well, let me tell you, God is whether you believe in him or not question is, me as a person who does believe in God, what do I believe about God? And what is my response to all of that? For instance, do you believe that God is sovereign, that he is omnipotent, omniscient? Do you believe that? Oh, so you must never worry, huh? Sometimes our behavior and our words contradict one another. We have God who is unchanging and we have us who sometimes forget that. God is all powerful, all knowing everywhere at the same time but Sometimes I behave as if I don't know that. As if I'm not aware of that. If, as if God had not shown me that, revealed that to me. And that's pretty foolish, isn't it? That's how important my response is to who God is. I'm here to tell you what I know from the Bible about who God is and what he's all about. But you have a role to play in this. What is your response? For instance, what have you got planned for later today? Okay. It doesn't matter. You're like doing some things that you view as secular you're going to Walmart, you're working on your car, you're watching the oh no, that's just atheists never mind. You're watching the White Sox play today. You're doing whatever. Will you be doing it with God? Well, in fact, you will. But will you be aware that you are What is your response to God? Did you hear the words at the end of Romans 11? Paul says, now Paul, by the way, has been talking for three chapters in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about the condition of Israel. And he is really bummed. He's upset because the Jews, by and large, are rejecting Christ as their Messiah And Paul's heart is to see his Jewish family members come to a fuller understanding of who God is in his son, Jesus Christ. But he's not making a lot of progress there. And in fact, God hasn't even called him to deal with them. God's calling on Paul is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But he is troubled about the condition of the Jewish world. And he talks about it for three chapters in Romans 9, 10, and 11 But at the end, he says, let me just sing a song of praise to God and his sovereignty because God knows what's going on with the Jews. God knows how he's going to bring all of this to a conclusion in his redemptive plan. God knows how my little ministry fits into what he's doing. God knows. Let me stop and think about that for a moment. So he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. Unsearchable his judgments. I mentioned how atheists, and likely none of you are atheists or you'd find something better to do on Sunday morning, but if you were you would probably have a problem with how God has managed life here on earth. Because a lot of people do. Even some of you who are Christians struggle with that. And Paul stops at the end of that and goes, what am I doing even thinking about why God does what he does? It's beyond my ability to understand. My trust is not in my understanding of what God is up to. My trust is in knowing who God is. He's faithful, loving, gracious, omnipotent, sovereign over all. So let me just stop here at the end of this ranting about Israel's condition, says Paul, and think about how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Are you picturing this? You're the counselor, and and God comes into the room. You go, God, if you'd lay down on my couch, tell me about how you felt about your mother and father. Oh, no, you didn't have one, never mind. And yet, we would like to quibble with God's decisions, wouldn't we? Hey, God, you know, you decided that this person should live this long. And I don't really like that person. Been good with me if you'd have cut it a little bit shorter. And this person would only live this long. And I really love that person. That's a no-win game, isn't it? Who has been the counselor of the Lord? God makes those decisions. And we have no control of them. So who has ever given to God that God should repay him? I remember one time I had a long prayer session with God in which I said in essence, God you owe me I gave up this, I gave up this, I gave up this, I gave up this. And I was going down the whole list. And I I was carrying on. And when I got to stop for a moment in the silence of that moment, I heard God clearly say to me, so what? Not your job. My decisions. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them. And so he comes to this conclusion. This is the last verse of Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and for him are all things. <laughs> He's going like, it's all about him. It's not all about you. You weren't even made to live or think or act or relate that way. You were made to live with God at the center of your existence. He was not brought into existence (laughs) to become the center of your reality. And yet, that's the way many of us look at it. As some have said, we have a God that we made after our own image right he's a bigger human being and so when my strength runs out i call on him for a little extra edge when i run out of wisdom i look to him etc etc that's not who god is and god doesn't play that game he is god we are not my life goes best when i recognize that fact so Worship simply our response to God. From him, through him, to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. I love this quote from Francis Chan, the crazy love guy, you know. He says, isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? (laughs) You need to get God pumped up in your mind to the point where you can't exaggerate him, and then he's bigger than that. He's stronger than that. He's smarter than that. And by the way, while you're pumping up your view of God, you need to be diminishing your view of you. So, Paul opens chapter 12 of Romans, and here's the word it's a preposition. It's an important preposition that you have read. Some of you have memorized this verse. But if I would have asked you, what's the verse before? None of you would have had a clue. And yet this verse only has meaning and purpose in light of chapter 11, verse 33. Which, by the way, didn't exist when Paul wrote the letter. All there is between chapter 11, verse 36, and chapter 12, verse 1, is a period. And as I think about it, in the original manuscripts, that might not have been there either. Amazing. So he says, therefore, and one of the simple little tools of hermeneutics, the science of interpreting scriptures, we say, is you read the word therefore, you don't move on until you stop and find out what the therefore is there for. Now, I just spent 10 minutes talking about what the therefore is there for, so now you know and have no excuse. But don't ever read therefore, particularly in the letters of Paul, and not stop and go, What for? Back up and read it. So. Therefore, because God is so great, because he's so awesome, because he's in charge, because he's God and I'm not, therefore, therefore, let's all say it together. Therefore, how should I live? Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God. Personal means between me and God, I am his creation. And in fellowship with others who also must answer to their creator and God, we worship. Worship never happens by specializing in one or the other area. It's not just a personal matter. And it's not something you can just do on Sunday when you get together with other believers. It's personal, yes. But it's also corporate. Personal and corporate. It's between me and God. And it's between me and God and others with whom I share my faith. It is both. And if you specialize in one or the other, chances are you have neither. Therefore, I urge you, brothers. What makes you brothers is your shared faith in Christ. Your shared dependence upon God. Your shared belief that he is God and you are not. Brothers. Seminary professor of mine, Dr. D.A. Carson He used to go by Don, but after he started writing books, he went to D.A. Maybe I'll try that. D.G. Petty. No, it doesn't work. Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God. If you were made by God, God now waits for your response. Ascribing all honor and worth to your creator, God... Precisely because he is worthy, and delightfully so. Responding to God because he is worthy, and giving him worth when it originally happens, you think you're making a big sacrifice. You're thinking like, Wow, now I suppose I'm going to have to do this and that and go to this meeting and have this activity and spend more time doing this. All right, it's worth it. I'll do it. And we do it. And then we realize we open the doorway to a delightful way of life that will change us from the inside out. And it's the whole thing we've been dreaming and hoping for all of our lives. We didn't give up anything. We only receive. Our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done. Those are in the proper order, but most of us practice them in the opposite order. When God does something that makes me happy, I want to tell anybody who'll listen. When God manages an area of my life that cramps my style and makes me uncomfortable... I just want to grumble and complain. And you're the same way. But I need to stop and realize that God is not only God because of what He's done, He certainly is because of that, but because of who He is. He is faithful. He's faithful when I'm faithful, He's faithful when I'm not so faithful. He is utterly and absolutely good and gracious and loving and absolutely holy and perfect all the time. That's who he is. And so when he does something, I recognize it. I recognize it because it's simply an expression of who he is. In view, says Paul in Romans 12, 1, of God's mercies. I've always loved the Living Bible uh, paraphrase of this verse because of the way it paraphrases that part. So, dear brothers, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living sacrifice, holy, the kind he can accept. And this part explains the verse in view of God's mercy. When you think of what he's done for you, is this too much to ask? (laughs) I mean... We act like it is, don't we? We act like what God asks for from us is somehow inconsistent with what he's given us. He's given us his all. He asks of us our all. Who has more? <laughs> God's sacrifice will always be greater and grander than ours. The result is this quality of attitude called gratitude. When we're thinking about, wow, if God never did another thing for me the rest of my life, I am in debt to him. And that attitude carries me. Psychologist and uh, author Melody Beatty put it this way. I like it. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance. Chaos into order. Confusion to clarity. It can turn a meal into a feast. A house into a home, a stranger, into a friend. Gratitude makes sense of our past, brings peace for our today, and creates a vision for tomorrow. Worship, our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is and what He has done, expressed in and by the things Offer your bodies, then, says Paul, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Everything that happens in your life in this world happens either in participation with or through your body, if you notice that. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, Pastor, I can't make it to the meeting on Wednesday, but I want you to know I'll be there in spirit. To which I have to remind them, in this world, wherever your spirit goes, it takes your body along with you. If your body's not here, no, your spirit won't be here either. It'll be wherever your body is. So either get your body off its backside and get it here, or realize it's not that important. All right, that's enough. That was like a little bit of an advertisement. there. Paul says, so offer your body. Say, hey, everything I do today through these hands everything I speak through this mouth, everything I see with these eyes, everywhere I go with these feet, it's yours. Don't let me go anywhere, say anything, do anything that doesn't bring pleasure to you. Make my every behavior, every reaction an offering of worship to you. This, says Paul, is pleasing to God. This according to Rick Warren is what God makes God smile. Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. Holy and pleasing to God. Oswald Chambers said, worship is simply giving God the best he has given you. That gave me a flashback. Back when I was about six or seven years old, I was not nearly this cute, but when I was about that age, my aunt, and she deserves some sort of special award in heaven, used to occasionally try to take me to the Baptist church for church, thinking maybe I'd get evangelized or exercised or something happened that would help me get on point. And uh, I remember church in those days was, if you ever get bored in church now, you ought to be transported back 40 years ago to find out how bored you can really get. In fact, part of worship in that day was the understanding that if anything makes you smile, laugh, wake up, then it must not be good. It's got to be a sin. But I do remember there was one time in in every worship service that I would light up because Finally, you could move and do something. And it was the offering time, right? And they passed the offering plate. I had a problem, though. I had a profound problem. I existed in the day, well, I was born shortly after the earth's crust was hardened. So you can imagine. I was born in the day long before the allowance. I remember some rich kids talking about that and going like, allowance, what's that? Right? I, I I'm pretty sure I never even owned even a coin until I was old enough to be able to start working. Okay, that's... I know you're, you're feeling really sorry for me, aren't you? Okay, so I'll, that's how old I am. But anyhow, um, however, when it was offering time, my aunt understood my dilemma, and she'd reach in her coin purse and pull out a quarter, put it in my little hand, and when that offering plate passed by... I'd put it in so proudly, and I remember thinking, I hope this church realizes that they can go on another week because of me. I could have kept the quarter. Now, my aunt would have probably beat me out in the car, but I could have kept it. Wouldn't know what to do it, because since you don't have any money, you don't know how to spend any money either. Ah, uh, uh, but I put it probably in the thing. You, you know what? A little bit ago, we took an offering in this service, didn't we? Guess what? You did exactly the same thing. <laughs> yes, you did. None of that was yours. It all came from God. He said, you need to give something today. Let me put something in your hand. I want you to think how you would have thought about me as a five-year-old child if I would have decided to pretend I put it in And stick it in my pocket. You've done that before. As an adult. (laughs) Everything you have came from God. How foolish it is to think. If I give this away in Jesus name. I'm not going to be able to have lunch this week. Or that or whatever. Some of you could. Do fine without a lunch every now and then. But anyhow that's another topic. I'm going to have to sacrifice terribly (laughs) as if God were broke, as if God runs out of money or resources or food. He does not. Worship is our response to God in what we say and the way we live. It's not just the songs we sing A song can be an awesome expression of worship. But it can also be just a song. Everything you do, everything you say, is to be a gift to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, says Paul in closing the verse. Richard Foster wrote this in one of his books. Just as worship begins in holy expectancy so it ends in holy obedience if god if worship does not propel us into greater obedience then it has not been worship at all so what is worship worship simply is our response To God. This is just the beginning. Next week, we're going to take a closer look at why people worship. And in doing so, we're going to use the words of the Apostle Paul when he found himself on a vacation in Athens and he decided to explore the town and found a strange statue. And then entered into an interesting discussion with a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Acts 17, if you'd like to read it ahead of time, verses 16 to 34.